Is there anybody in your life that you call them a name that's really kind of more their title than their name? Okay. Um, um, the, the, uh, there's a guy back here, a, a gray-haired, distinguished-looking gentleman, that a lot of the people from Illinois call him PFIs. Are you aware they call you that? Oh, uh, well, it was, it was, a, it was Illinois students because one of them works for me, and I know she's still occasionally, and I say, uh, Nevin, you can't call him that. But, uh, okay, he, this is President Fozard, and so they call him PFIs sometimes. It's more of a title, okay, than... Um, all right, um, uh, 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 Joey Grubbs is leading today, and he's my doctor, and typically when I talk to him, I call him Doc. It's more of his title than his name. He, anybody, uh, anybody ever call you Teach, Sally? Yeah, Teach, okay. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, uh, anybody else got one like that? Where it's somebody's kind of their title or their role rather than... Uh, um, Mary Carroll still calls Jeff money bags, okay? I, I, I just made that up. Just made that up. Yeah, nothing you can say in church, okay? All right. Now, so when we meet Malachi, we're not really sure if Malachi was his name, capital M. It says that in Malachi 1.1. But by 3.1... All right, where we'll start today, by 3-1, the same word translated Malachi in 1-1 is translated messenger in 3-1. In so it could be, it could be that he, this is a title, but it may be his name also. So anyway, this is, uh, this would be akin to somebody saying, um, calling him preacher. That's kind of... Uh, a little bit of the, the story here. Um, we don't have a whole lot of knowledge about him, so uh, extra biblical knowledge about him, so um, we kind of have to piece a few of those things together. It seems like the things that he addresses were going on at the same time uh, as Ezra and Nehemiah, which is kind of the close of the Old Testament uh, historical message. And so that would put Malachi in probably the mid-5th century B.C. And so I'm going to argue at least that he's going to be one of the last messengers recorded in the Old Testament uh, chronologically. You know, we know that, that the Bible was kind of silent for 400 years plus. And uh, Malachi would be a kind of toward the end of, of, of those things. Um, for context, um, that, that dating means that the temple had been rebuilt and it was in operation for about 50 years. Okay, so it had been rebuilt, kind of redone. The walls around the city were kind of being rebuilt. And uh, for about 50 years, that had, that had been taking place. And so most of Malachi's audience had grown up with the temple being fully functional. Now, that's new. Okay, we, a lot of the, the, uh, the uh, minor prophets, especially we're dealing with, would be preaching during a time when there was no temple or, or when they were still in exile, like we, like we looked at last week. Malachi is going to be preaching to folks who uh, the temple, they've never not known the temple, uh, but it's post-exile, post-Babylonian um, post period. Now, the worst offenders, it's interesting, uh, Malachi's complaint is that the people don't really respect the Lord. I'm sure he's the only one that ever had that message, right? Just, people just don't any longer respect God. 
And in particular, it seems that the worst offenders are the temple priests themselves. Those that ought to, if anybody knows better, these guys ought to know better. And, uh, and they're guilty of doing things like using defective animals as sacrifices. You can read about that in 6, 7, and 8 in the first chapter. Um, so he prophesies some judgment for those priests um, that will kind of span generations. But the, um, the future wasn't entirely bleak. And he's going to bring us some glimmers of hope. Look with me at chapter 1. I'm going to, I'm going to go to verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So that, that's kind of the backdrop. He's, he's very concerned about the direction of worship in the nation, even though they now have the temple restored. And, uh, and this lack of respect, it seems, for the Lord God himself. It's interesting, as he's dealing with all this, he's going to give us the most definitive teaching in the Old Testament on giving. And we'll deal with that a little bit before we finish. And then that becomes kind of the closing of the Old Testament message. Bob, would you mind to read the first five verses of Malachi 3? Okay. Now, in a moment, I want us to go to something that Jesus says, because Jesus is going to cite this passage. I always find it intriguing, the passages that Jesus cites from the, from the Old Testament. John, would you go to Matthew 11? And I want you to read verse 10 and 11 when we get there. We'll go there in just a minute. Now, uh, Cherry, I couldn't help but think of you when I was prepping this message, because I've heard, I've heard a recitative from this all my, all my adult life uh, from, from uh, Handel's Messiah, and I remember a good friend that I was in college with, uh, who was a country singer, um, uh, would would have to sing. We'd have to sing stuff like this in lab, but and he would over enunciate just to make sure that he could. And uh, when he got to the word suddenly, he'd roll his D's. He'd say, "The Lord whom you seek has suddenly come to his temple." And uh, anyway, every time I read this, I think of I think of you. And. Uh, uh, Although I've never heard you sing this, since it's a ba- I think it's a bass recit anyway. So yeah, okay. Um, and you're far from being a bass lady. I know. I know. Um, now, uh, there are four characters that are identified here in this first verse, um, and actually there's only two. But it's going to sound like if you if you don't extrapolate, it's going to sound like four different people. Okay. He first mentions here. Um, um, a future messenger. You can put that in the first little line. A future messenger. Okay? Um, uh, and he's going to mention another messenger in a minute. We want to catch this. Um, I'm going to send my messenger. He'll clear the way before me. Who does that sound like to you? It really is talking about John the Baptist from way over here, 500 B.C. Okay? Uh, so, um, uh, kind of someone to prepare the way. Um, the idea is that um, that, that he's going to talk about in this chapter is that as the, the preparatory voice for the coming of the Messiah, there are some who will prepare for his coming and some who will not. Okay? Um, and so, um, but, but I love this thought that, um, that, that Jesus even refers to, and, and here's how we kind of can certainly connect the dots, because Jesus identifies who that voice is. John, you mind to read? Uh, Matthew 11, verse 10 and 11, I think. This is the one that I will send 
So Jesus identifies Malachi 3.1 as being about whom? John the Baptist, really clear. Uh, one of the things that, that occurs to me as, I, as, I, as John was reading this, how well did Jesus know his Bible? Pretty well. Pretty well, didn't he? You know, I mean, you and I, I mean, how often do you meditate on Malachi? Okay, I mean, you know, it's beautiful, but okay. And yet Jesus pulls this passage and somebody's asking him about John the Baptist. He's saying, he's the one that was predicted here that would prepare the way for me to come, he says. Uh, and so you've got the one uh, in the first line there, uh, a future messenger. And then the second one, said, the, the second reference here in verse one, um, uh, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, or cherry, will suddenly come, suddenly come to his temple. Yeah. Uh, the Lord whom you seek. So uh, we've got to think about this just a little bit. Um, uh, and it is talking about God. It's talking about uh, the Lord God. And it says here that he will come um, somewhat unexpectedly. Now, I kind of want to challenge that thought for a minute because suddenly and unexpectedly aren't necessarily synonyms, are they? I don't think so. Um, uh, it could be that I know the burglar's coming and he will be there suddenly, but if I know he's coming and I've got Rhonda's 12 gauge in my hands, it won't be unexpectedly. Okay? All right, so there's a difference. I know he'll, okay, sometime tonight he's coming and it'll be sudden when he gets there, but it won't be unexpected on my part. And by the way, that's, the, that's kind of the attitude we ought to adopt. And there were those, I'm gonna tell you. Read uh, your New Testament. There are those who... The Lord suddenly came to his temple, but when he came, they recognized him because they were looking for him. Read about Simeon and Anna in Luke 2. These elderly people who all their lives had looked for him. And, they, and Simeon in particular really believed that the Lord would come in his lifetime. He'd gotten a promise from the Holy Spirit that the Lord would come in his lifetime. And so even though it seemed sudden to the people around him, um, when the Lord came, and literally as a wriggling baby, being dedicated to the temple, Simeon recognizes him and walks over to the mother and says, can I hold him for a minute? And sings this song to him. Recognizing. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So the Lord is in the second line there. He will suddenly come. And then uh, in, in kind of typical Old Testament um, uh, fashion, it'll say one thing and it'll explain it another couple ways. Then he's called the messenger of the covenant. You can put that in there. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Uh, so it's this idea, and, and we probably ought to think a little bit about this. I won't spend any time on it, but what did it mean that Jesus came as the messenger of the covenant? Well, he was going to interpret it for them. And then it ends, the, the verse ends with um, um, uh, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Um, 
So the idea, if the Lord, the, the last character here is the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts, and the, the reason that's put in there, do you, do you catch it in context? This is getting ready to happen, says the Lord of hosts. What does it mean if God says it? You can count on it. It, it will happen. You can count on it. Now, I want to contrast just for a minute. Um... There are a lot of prognosticators out there. Um, in, on February 15, 2013, a giant meteor exploded in the sky over eastern Russia. Um, uh, asteroid 2012 DA-14 passed very close to the Earth. Um, and it seemed like there was kind of some eternal significance to this, and people started prognosticating about what this could mean. Um, Typically, when I sit on Sunday morning, if I'm uh, ever in Missouri on Sunday morning, my father-in-law wants to listen to a particular preacher that he's fond of that I'm not. <laughs> and, um, and, and by the way, he knows it. And uh, we still love each other, but, you know. And this guy has, has really parlaying his entire ministry around his prediction about the blood moon and what that means, okay? If you're a fan of this guy, that's fine. But, but I'm just saying... I'm not real sure that, that the Lord's going to let you predict this that closely. I, I'm, I'm not real sure about that. Uh, uh, more important than ascertaining the time of the Lord's coming, um, whether or not uh, the first instance in Malachi's prophecy or the second in our day, more important than that is letting the world know it will happen, that the Lord will return. That for Malachi to let the Lord, let the people know, you know, this is going to happen suddenly. I don't know when, but he would say, I don't know when, but it'll happen suddenly. Don't be surprised by it. And you and I need to adopt, don't we, kind of the same position in terms of the second coming of Jesus. So, he asked a series then in verse 2 of kind of rhetorical questions. Let's look at them. He says, Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. You ever say something besides fuller's? Say it a launderer? Okay. It's, it, literally, it's the idea of lye soap and making something clean. In fact, they tell me that in that day, the soap they used was so caustic that they could, they could rub it on, on brown cloth and make it white. So it must be kind of like bleach. That's kind of the idea um, here. Um, so he asked this question, who can stand before the refiner's fire? Who can, who can handle this launderer's soap? By the way, if you want a reference to it, uh, there is another reference to it in Mark chapter 9. Um, uh, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says his clothes became white like no launderer could make them. Remember that little, little reference from Mark 9, verse 3? Well, uh, there's that idea here that he is, when, when, when God comes, when Jesus comes, Malachi's prediction, when the Lord suddenly comes to his temple, he's going to clean some things up. So the implied question, the implied answer to the question here in verse 2 is no one can stand. Do you kind of catch that? No one is going to be able to stand. Who can endure this? Uh, because he's going, to, he's going to purify the nation. 
like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Um, okay, now, it's kind of interesting here who, who he's going to purify and, uh, and how he's going to do this a little bit. Um, uh, if you read it in context, he's talking about he's going to purify whom? The sons of Levi. Who's it talking about there? The priests, the preachers, okay? He's going to purify those who ought to know better. Okay, now let me give you some facts about that from verse 3. Let me read it from the New American Standard in verse 3. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. So what's he going to do first? He's going to sit. I think that's interesting. It's a reference to um, a smelter or um, uh, some kind of a smith. Sitting, okay, at a fire, pulling dross out of a precious metal, okay? He's a metallurgist, kind of got that? He's sitting. I think there's a broader reference here. I think there's a parenthetical reference, at least, to the fact that when, when Jesus comes, he will sit eventually on a throne of judgment. So he'll sit. That's an interesting posture and an important one. He will sit to purify and to judge. Okay, secondly, all right, he will cleanse the leaders. Now that's what we were talking about. Look at 1.6 again. We read it a minute ago. A son honors, honors his father. A servant honors his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. Okay? So he's saying here, he's going to cleanse the Levites, the priests. All right? The sons of Levi. Now, the, he's talking here about in this now operating rebuilt temple, those who are corrupting the sacrificial system, and he's going to come and purify them. By the way, did Jesus ever do something like this when he was walking the planet? You remember when he overturned the temples of the money changers? It was kind of the same issue. He was, he was just sickened. Uh, you, uh, uh, the Lord has made this, a, has called this a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Remember? He's purifying the sons of Levi. Okay, that's kind of the idea there. Now, but I think this is clear, and I read this in a commentary this week, and I, I want to really... Um, you notice that he didn't, um, in, in all, the, all the aggressive behavior that he had in the temple, when he's overturning the temples of the money changers, he gets a whip and snaps it, you know, all that stuff. You notice he didn't hurt anybody. His purpose was not, I want you to catch this, because I think it's really, really important. When Jesus came, his purpose was not to annihilate. That's the word, if you can spell that, that's what goes in the next line. If not, see Sally, she'll teach you how to spell annihilate. His purpose was not to annihilate the leaders, but to purify them. That's an entirely different idea. He, his intent was not to wipe them out. He didn't, he didn't go in the temple and kill the priests, right? And even the money changers. He just wanted to clean them up. Like a refiner's fire like a launderer's bleach. 
So, it's kind of a wonderful promise when you think about it there. Now, this system, it's going to say in verse 4, has been defiled over years of neglect. Uh, let's read verse 4 together again. Uh, he's going to say here, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. So he's looking back and he's saying, you know, the system was pure hundreds of years ago. It is not pure now. So the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He's going to clean it up. That's kind of the idea. All right? Now, verse 5, he mentions several kind of groups of people. Look there. Look there at the groups of people that he mentions in verse 5 that Bob read for us a little bit ago. What do all these groups of people have in common? Well, there's certainly, there is a lack of fear of God that we're talking about way back from 1-6. All of these people here, all these people groups, um, um, he's dealing with here not just the priests, but those whose sin the leaders have tolerated. And it mentions several groups of people, okay? It mentions those who are... um, who are um, uh, adulterous or those who are um, uh, kind of dabbling in magic or sorcery, on and on, okay? Uh, there's kind of a thought here that the leaders of, of, of um, the religious life in, in, um, and worship life have just kind of allowed all this stuff to kind of take place in parallel, what should have been pure and good and holy. And, uh, and so the idea here is he's going to clean that up too. Um, he's going to purify all of that, not just the priests, but those whose sin they have tolerated. Now, so he mentions sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, and notice here he mentions those are condemned also who oppress the most vulnerable. That's been this whole series that we've been talking about, those who oppress the vulnerable. And there's kind of this idea that the blanket description of all these people is that they don't fear the Lord or that they seem to deal with God's commandment as being kind of irrelevant. And God's basically saying here, if humans don't enact God's justice, then God himself is going to do it. What side of that equation do you and I want to be on in 2015? If I don't live justly, If my culture, those with whom I have some influence, those who I live around, our nation, if we don't live justly, I don't know that I want to be in the position of God having to come back and say, you know what, since you didn't deal justly, I'm going to deal justly for you. I just don't want to be in that place. And that's kind of what Malachi is warning us. Let's read a few more verses, okay? Uh, Somebody read 6 down through 10. Cindy, can you stop right there and I'm going to have you come back to nine? Because he asked a question that we're going to answer here. I I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, God's answer to the justice question um, has to do with, because they're asking, so where's the justice of God? Why didn't God fix all these things himself? Um, And he he references here then, uh, giving a word from the Lord, Micah references the justice of God that's unchangeable, his unnature. 
unchangeable nature. Now, what I've got to ask you about this is, is his unchangeable, God's unchangeable nature comforting to you or is it disturbing to you? You know, I think sometimes we go back to God thinking he's like a, like a heavenly parent who we're hoping when we ask him the 15th time he'll change his mind. And yet God says, my nature is, I'm never going to change. I'm the same. Um, and that ought to be somewhat comforting to us. God's answer to the justice question here is that God is not answerable to us. He says it to Job over in chapter 38. And then he incites us or invites us as he invites them to repent. Returning here. He says return. And he anticipates a pushback. The return involves repentance. He anticipates a pushback and, uh, and he asks how. How's it? They ask, he says, so you ask, how's this going to take place? And he begins to say, I'm going to tell you. You need to do some things in verse 8. And so in verse 8, he's uh, dealing with a specific thing that's got to take place uh, in order for this purifying to take place. Now, Cindy, would you read verse 9 and 10? Okay, this, this is a kind of a wonderful thing. I'm going to give you three things for us to apply here uh, just as we finish up, all right? The bad, how bad is the problem? The whole nation is involved in it. And they've asked, okay, at least Mike is kind of uh, pre-thinking their pushback. So how do we do this? And he says, here's how you can start. And what does he start with? The issue of giving. I find that interesting. This is kind of the uh, proof text for tithing in the Old Testament. So God's answer is this, all right? He says, quit robbing God, and I'm going to give you three things to apply here real quick. God's answer is, first of all, generosity feeds the family. Generosity feeds the family. In other words, the temple is cared for when you and I give. The priests are provided for, those who work around here. The lights are turned on, you know, all that kind of stuff when we give. Generosity feeds the family. It literally, in Old Testament days, fed the Levitical family. Second, the giver will be blessed. That's something that God doesn't have to do. But Malachi describes this as floodgates. Now, I was watching the news for a minute this morning while I was getting dressed, and they were talking about uh, Hurricane Katrina and, and all the things that are going on to mark the 10th anniversary of that. And they talked about the, it's, the problem was floodgates. It just overwhelmed them. Isn't it interesting that Malachi uses in a description of how God will respond to your gifts, he says the floodgates will open up. The standard line on this that I want you to think about is that you absolutely cannot outgive God. You can't do it. He'll open the floodgates. And then he says one other thing about giving. And then I want to apply this and we'll go. He allows us to test God. God allows us to test himself. It's not a quid pro quo, but God says in so many words, test me on this and see if I won't open up the floodgates. Now, I think sometimes we think of giving. Uh, if we're giving an offering at church today, we may be tempted to view it like a parent giving a child an allowance. Okay, I'm giving Marty an allowance today. <laughs> but we kind of do, don't we? Or like a taxpayer dutifully writing a check to the government 
This is kind of my responsibility. But Malachi's understanding flows in the opposite direction. He's going to say, all of the sheep are God's to begin with. He's just asking for one-tenth of what's his back. For an ancient Israelite to tithe was God's permission for them to keep the other nine-tenths. Is that an important concept? I think it is. And I think it's wonderful here as we, as we close to think about the fact that God's parting message before 400 years of kind of silence before, Mal- before Matthew and, and the message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is get yourself lined up with God and get yourself lined up in terms of giving. Well, I'll let you interpret this. Uh, by the way, if, if you're like some that I know who claim that tithing is not a New Testament concept, uh, I will say, yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, Jesus asked for 100%. So you kind of don't want to go there. Kind of don't want to go there. All right? Okay, we're out of time. I'll see you next week. We'll be in Acts 1 and 2 next week.